Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. He's going to say, yeah, Joe, go for it. Instead, he looks at me and he goes, Joe, I really don't think you can do it. Really focus on the smallest scale. And he walks away. And it was in that moment where I'm like, F that. I'm going to figure this out. Like, these chairs are getting made, full-size functional. And I set off on this conquest to figure out how the hell do you make 16 full-size functional chairs? I've never made a chair in my life. I'd never even worked with wood before. Definitely didn't work with any of the machinery or hand tools that you need to make chairs. So this was like stepping into the unknown in a major way. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie. I'm Amy and this is Clever. And today we are talking to Joe Gebbia. You know his name because he famously co-founded Airbnb and helped to build a new global economy in hospitality. But did you know that he also founded a basketball team? It's true. He started the basketball team at Rhode Island School of Design, where he also earned dual degrees in graphic design and industrial design. Now he serves as the CPO of Airbnb and works to instill a culture of creativity throughout the organization. He's also responsible for Samara, Airbnb's new in-house design studio that focuses on exploring new attitudes towards sharing and trust. Plus, he recently launched a collaborative workplace furniture collection with Bernhardt Design. So let's talk to Joe. My name is Joe Gebbia, and I'm here in San Francisco, California, and I'm a designer, and I love to figure out how to use design to improve people's lives. Excellent. So paint the picture for us about your childhood. Where'd you grow up? What was your family like? What kind of a kid were you? So I grew up in the Deep South in a little town outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and I think you know, I had a pretty, a pretty lucky childhood. I grew up in a you know, suburban neighborhood that I was able to have tons of friends, and you know, family life was, was fairly normal to a degree. You know, my parents were both um, self-employed, working for themselves, and that introduced a couple of challenges growing up, but also, I don't know, it showed me what it looks like to be in charge of your own path. Yeah. Two entrepreneur parents? Two entrepreneur parents. Both like worked incredibly hard. And at times, you know, things weren't always great financially for us. But by and large, I think that, you know, their work ethic is what, you know, made the family work and certainly rubbed off on me in so many ways. 
Yeah, I bet. Were you a creative kid? I think people would describe me as a creative kid. I, I was like considered the art guy in school, mm-hmm. uh, even from elementary school through middle and into high school. One of the things I was blessed with with my parents is that they were always supportive of whatever my interests were, which was very different from some of my friends' parents that sort of said, you know, uh, you have to be an athlete or you have to be into science or you have to be into, you know, a law degree one day or they're sort of like some of my friends were put on tracks very early in life. And I felt very lucky that my interest in music, art and sports were embraced by my parents. So how did that show up? I remember in the second grade, I started my first company <laughs> and it was the perfect what? intersection of <laughs> art and entrepreneurship. In the second grade, this is like, oh God, it must be early 90s. The original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had come out. And it uh-huh. was all the rave. I was so into it that I started drawing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And classmates started to want to buy these drawings from me. And so I ended up starting to sell these, these drawings of Michelangelo and Raphael and Donatello. <laughs> like one or two dollars each. And I'd mount them on like this like special colored paperboard and I was selling these and so kids were going home and asking their parents for more lunch money and their lunch their parents were like started to complain to the school why is my kid asking for more lunch money so <laughs> eventually the teachers chased it back to me and they sh- they shut the business down um, oh man uh, it was great you know <laughs> I got to experience what it was like to to create something that other people wanted and actually wanted to you know buy from you and it was a cool experience too because I had uh, you know extra uh extra lunch money at the end of the day myself. Yeah. Did you invest it in anything? Did you buy anything with your profit? <laughs> I, I put it straight into Microsoft stock at the time and it did. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think I probably bought more art supplies. Nice. Honestly. Yeah. Reinvest in the business. That's yeah. good. <laughs> it was just really fun to like, to, to see people find delight in something that you created. And that was a, that was a really early lesson for me. And something that stood out and something that you know, informed me to the next project. I'm like, cool, that was fun. Yeah, and it's so different than your parents pinning it up on the refrigerator. Because your parents are sort of, they're supposed to like what you do. You, you get that from a really young age, <laughs> that you're always going to get like a cheerleading crew from your parents. But when peers want to buy it from you, that's different. That's powerful. So from second grade art hustler to the teenage years, help us understand what the teenage years were like for you. I mean, for a lot of kids, they're kind of raw and and always very formative. What kind of challenges or struggles or angst or confusion did you have to reconcile with? Well, I remember growing up, you know, my parents were always on the road. They were always out with customers, with stores that they worked with, the products that they were representing or, or selling. And I remember getting to tag along with my mom or my dad on these trips. And what really stood out to me is that they would stay till the store closed and they'd be there with the store manager or the owner. And they would actually be helping that person, you know, stock the shelves or clean up the store. And I just remember this as like, it was, it was highly impressionable of like seeing, seeing my parents just go to great lengths to service and take care of those they were doing business with. I just distinctively remember this time and time again, just like stocking the shelves and like, we didn't have to be there. Like they already had the sale. Like the business itself was actually done. This was like this extra credit was like going above and beyond that. I really admired about them. I mean, did you ever feel slightly jealous that 
these customers were getting more of your parents' attention than you were? <laughs> I don't think so, no. <laughs> I, I think I connected okay. the dots that this is um, bringing home the livelihood that could then fund my art, my sports, and my music <laughs> interests. Okay. What kind of music were you playing or listening or oh my banging your head? What was going on? My mom got me into violin when I was about four years old. Oh, that's badass. Yeah, you know, looking back, yeah, this little badass blonde-haired four-year-old playing this, the tiniest violin you've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> it was like from a Disney movie. It was so small. <laughs> and uh, there was a moment where I was playing at a recital, and, you know, everybody was, was older than me. Everybody was way more advanced than I was, even, you know, kids six or seven years old or eight or 10 or 12. And... Uh, Eventually in the recital, the song we were all playing together got beyond my ability to play. And I just sat down on the front of the stage with my tiny violin. And that was the point where my parents tell me, you know, years later that they decided they would never force me down a certain path. That this, this was their idea of what was right for me to learn how to play violin. Um, and from that moment on, they said, you know what, we're going to follow his natural interests, whatever they might be. And good news is that during all those violin lessons, there was a piano in the room. And as soon as the violin lesson was over, I would run over to the piano and start banging on the keys and it, like almost instantly fell in love with, with the piano as an instrument. And so shortly after violin, you know, took a break, I asked for piano lessons and they, they obliged. And um, I was lucky enough to begin piano lessons in around the second grade. So you grew up with a piano in the home, and did you practice all the time? Basic stand-up piano, I was practicing all the time. I just loved it. And I, I feel like it was between this and my love for drawing, between the piano and between drawing, that I just started to recognize that there was this creativity or this sense of expression that really fulfilled me. Like I was in a state of joy when I was trying to learn piano or trying to figure out how to draw better. Ah, so that is probably what compelled you to apply to art school and eventually led to you attending RISD, right? Yeah, I'd say that those were some of the first moments when I realized I, I wanted to be a part of some sort of creative process. I took every art, art class that I could in high school, and luckily I went to one of the largest high schools in the state of Georgia. So we were afforded a pretty wide range of art classes from pottery and actually jewelry making to photography and drawing and painting, ceramics. Oh, wow. That's a luxury. I got super lucky, right? Like not every high school has, you know, a robust art program. And so based on the advice from my middle school teachers, I took as many art classes as I could. I filled up all my electives with art. And in the state of Georgia, they have this program called Governor's Honors, where students from different disciplines like science and languages and math, music and art can apply to attend a summer program with the other best students from the disciplines around the state of Georgia. And you go study on a college campus for six weeks. And my art teacher suggested that I apply as a sophomore. And usually it was, this is for juniors, for the older students. I ended up applying and I went through the whole interview process where you have to share your portfolio of your work, of everything you've made. And I ended up getting into the Governor's Honors Program. And this was a turning point for me. Because this is when art went from being something that was, I just enjoyed it and like it was something fun for me. And then it started to turn into like, maybe this is like a life path. Maybe there's a career and like there's more of a direction in life to go. Because six weeks on this college campus, you were basically a college student. They treated you like one. You took college level coursework and we were being taught drawing and painting 
by college-level instructors. And it was the first time I got to do figure drawing and life drawing. I really go deeper into painting and with understanding materials around oil paints. It was just a phenomenal, like, life-changing experience. You know, like, we all have these moments at some point in our life where you go one direction, you can never look back again. Because the main instructor in the art department was the first one to really tell me about RISD. And, you know, I worked on this huge painting. It was like eight feet by like four feet all summer. And it got into the final show and it made it on the premiere wall of the gallery when you walked in. And so like the closing show of this, this whole six week program, you walked in and there was my piece. And yet I was like probably the youngest guy in the program. And uh, so this teacher pulls me aside and her name was Donna. And she says, you know, I really think you need to consider looking at the Rhode Island School of Design. And I'm like, Rhode Island? What? Like, why would I go to Rhode Island? Like, what's, what's in Rhode Island? <laughs> mm-hmm. And based on her advice, I started to do my research. And I looked into all the art schools all over the world. And RISD had such a great reputation that the next summer, I went and did a pre-college program at RISD. And so now I get to spend six weeks on campus during the summer and take more art classes and really go even deeper into my understanding of drawing and painting and materials and the language of art, really. And, you know, it was through those two experiences that, A, I knew I wanted to go to art school. That was a definitive decision. B, uh, I just fell in love with, with Providence and I fell in love with RISD's campus and the, the ethos of the school. Yeah. So I'm a RISD, this is Amy, I'm a RISD alum as well. And um, I don't think we were there at the same time, though, because I graduated from the um, furniture MFA program in 2001. Oh, cool. We overlapped by one year. Oh, we did. Okay. Yeah, I started in 2000 <laughs> and graduated 2005. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So Providence is an insane town. Like it's so old and it's such a great cross section of super conservative, super progressive, very creative, a lot of blue collar. It's just got so much flavor and it's all swirled together in this magical pot. And then, yeah, RISD. I just grew so much there. My head exploded mm-hmm. in the best possible way. <laughs> but let's talk about you and your college years, because you've now figured out that art has clicked for you and you want to study it in school. What were the college years like for you and how was it meaningful to you in terms of shaping your adulthood? It was also another, another transformative moment for me. You know, like, like I'm sure so many other people, it's first like leaving the South was a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. I was one of the few people, I think, from my high school that actually left the state of Georgia. And so the fact that I was going all the way to New England was like... That was like headline news for my town. <laughs> um, so, and you know, I was going to be far from home, which that part of me looked forward to and part of me was a little, you know, had some anxiety about. But I remember I, I got to RISD and just say like the first week set the tone for the, the next four years that I'd spent on campus. The first week, a couple things happened. One is that in orientation, I remember one of the orientation leaders saying, look to your left, look to your right. The people in this room may be people that you collaborate with in the future. They may your employees in the future, or they may employ you in the future. So make sure that you develop and cultivate and nurture, you know, friendships and relationships with the people here. And I remember hearing this and then thinking to myself, oh my God, like there might be somebody in here that I might want to start a business with one day. And to understand that thought, we need to back up a little bit. I was in high school during the first dot com. And so every day I'd come home and I'd pull up, you know, CNET.com or business 2.0 or some tech business magazine. And I was enthralled by the stories of these companies that kept starting. And every day there was some new company that was launching somewhere. 
and you could trace the roots of it, and it all seemed to lead back to Silicon Valley and San Francisco area. And there was something just so exciting about the premise of the internet. And you know, it was around this time that I started to get into web design. I taught myself HTML and CSS. And I remember when I posted my first website, this was magic. You could have an idea. And you could press upload, and your code which translate into design that anybody with an internet connection could see anywhere in the world. And this to me was like just magic. Like I was like so blown away that <laughs> you're uh, still excited by it. I could tell. <laughs> well, it's, it's true because it changed the world like so many times over. Mm-hmm. And I remember where I was, it was starting to, you know, become more commonplace. And I remember thinking around this time in, in high school, like I kind of had this notion that I want to start my own business one day. I didn't know what it would be. I just know based on seeing the, the joy that my parents had creating their businesses, I felt like I wanted to do the same one day with whatever it was I did. And it just seemed like at that time, if you had an idea, the best place to bring it to life was Silicon Valley or San Francisco. So that planted a very deep seed with me. Okay, so fast forward, mm-hmm. now I'm back at RISD. It's the first week back at orientation. This orientation leader says, look around you. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, like maybe there's a future business partner somewhere in this room right now. And it began this moment of turning on my radar that over the next couple of years, running around campus, meeting people, very subtly in the back of my mind, I'd be sort of like asking a couple of questions to myself. Like, is this person creative? Do they seem entrepreneurial? Does it seem like they'd be fun to partner with on an idea? And I had this, this radar on uh, throughout my entire time on campus. So that was, that was one thing that happened the first week. Oh, that is profound. Yeah. It was really it was good advice. The second best mm-hmm. piece of advice I got on campus was from a fifth-year architecture senior named Bill. It was late one night. We're outside the car house, which is this really old house on campus. This beautiful architecture from like the late 1800s. And inside the car house is the office of student life. This is where all the student groups came and ran their organizations. And I asked Bill, this much wiser fifth-year senior who's about to graduate, I said, Bill, like, what advice do you have for me as a freshman? And he looks at me and goes, Joe, spend as much time in that building as you possibly can. And he pointed to student life. And here I am on campus. I don't know anything. So I'm like, okay, Bill, I'm going to do that. You know, a couple of days go by and I walk into student life. I go to the guy at the front desk and I look at him and I go, hey, I'd like to sign up for the basketball team. And he looks at me with this really funny face and he goes, well, we don't have a basketball team. We're an art school. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, ah, oh, shoot, I should have asked this sooner. I played basketball my whole life. I love the sport. <laughs> and there's this awkward silence forming between us. I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. And he breaks the silence by saying, but you can start a team if you want to. And I go, really? Well, how does that work? And he goes, well, find 12 other students that also want to play basketball and come back to me with their names. And I'm like, that's all I have to do? He's like, yeah. So I run around campus. I put up signs in the dorms. And I found 12 people that also played basketball. And I brought the list to him you know, a couple of days later. And I go, what's the next step? And he goes, great. You need to go to the Student Alliance to get um, recognized as a student organization, to get funding. I go, how does that work? And he goes, you have to go to this room at this time. I go to student alliance meeting. It gets approved as a student group. I get a budget. I go back to him. I go, what's the next step? He goes, well, I guess you need a gym, don't you? 
So <laughs> RISD did not have a basketball gym. So I had to source a, a local high school gym that we could rent from. I got a van for the team that we could drive to, to get there. And that year, we formed uh, RISD's first basketball team. And in so many ways, what, what this team represented as it went from this super scrappy group that year to a, a more matured, built-out program that's still going today. This was, in so many ways, my first startup. Mm-hmm. I had to... The balls. Uh, yes, they are called the balls. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's an art school. Our listeners should know that, that RISD's other team is a hockey team, and they are called the NADS, so people in, in the bleachers can cheer, go NADS. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> there was a theme that we needed to fit into, so yes, we're called the balls. Um, and our logo, you know, I had to develop the logo and the brand. I had to assemble a team. I had to raise funding for the team. I had to put an operation together and actually call other schools to schedule games with them. Oh, wow. Um, This really is a startup. It it was the whole thing in like this little microcosm. Yeah. All the same things at obviously like a a tiny, tiny scale, but it certainly allowed me over the next couple of years to really, you know, bump into the walls of entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, we have this idea. I really want to create a basketball team. I want to play on one. And I made so many mistakes with putting that team together. You know, I would call up schools in New England to tell them that the team existed. And I didn't even finish my greeting and, and coaches were hanging up on me. <laughs> I'd say, this is Joe Gebbia from the RISD basketball team. Hello? Hello? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Nobody took us seriously. I got the first team. It was a, a college in Massachusetts to agree to come down. They sent their junior varsity team. And uh, I knew it was bad news when they walked in the door and they had four coaches. Oh my and gosh. their shortest guy, shortest guy was taller than our t- tallest guy. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, you know, I think they realized what they got themselves into when they, they entered the court and they saw me as the player coach and <laughs> this like rough and tumble, like art school basketball team with like, you know, really basic jerseys with the balls logo on the front. <laughs> and I mean, we got totally creamed that night. Of I course. remember the score was 94 <laughs> to 49. Oh, it was a slaughter. Bad, actually. 49. That's, yeah, that's good. Yeah. 49 points. To me, it was a huge win. That was the first game that the balls played. And from there, it was actually downhill. I was able to call schools and figure out how to actually put a schedule together. Eventually, I roped in a couple of other art schools. So I got Pratt University in Brooklyn. And I got Cooper Union in Manhattan. And those became huge art rivals for us. And there's a kind of a meta thing that, that happened as I look back over the years of forming and then, and then running the balls. Is that before I ever got to RISD, I'd be curious if, if you heard this too. It's like everyone warned me that, you know, it's, it's the work ethic and the workload is so heavy that, you know, people go off into their majors and you never see them again. And there's these, these silos that that exist. And I always thought, even before I went to campus, I'm like, wow, like, it'd be cool to actually break down the silos somehow. You know, it'd be cool to actually figure out ways to co-mingle and, and cross-pollinate more based on this, this theme that I keep hearing from people. And one of the things I'm most proud with about the balls is that it brought together students, faculty, alumni, staff, administration, local, you know, province community members, even Brown students, under the same roof at the same time. And the only other moment that happened during the school year was graduation. And Hmm. so there's this this really cool kind of meta 
part of, of the basketball team. Yeah, it was about sports and it was about staying in shape and it was about, you know, running this operation and learning all this stuff. It was also about bringing people together. It also presented one of the world's greatest marketing challenges, <laughs> which is how do you get art students to a sporting event on a Friday night? <laughs> <laughs> that's impossible. <laughs> Well, that's fantastic that you did that, though. That's really cool. And it's cool that it's still going. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. 
both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Oh, it is. Before I left campus, I wrote this thing called the Balls Initiative. And it was really my framework for why the team exists, how to run it, all the resources that I had created or discovered over the time that I was on campus. And it was really meant to be like the legacy document that every captain thereafter could pass down to the next one. And the coolest thing is that, you know, whenever I go back to campus, I meet up with the team and they still have this like dog-eared cornered document that's printed out called the Balls Initiative. Oh, that's so rad. I love that you're leaving artifacts behind you everywhere you go. (laughs) The third thing that happened on campus during the first week is I got assigned a professor who, whenever I told an upperclassman his name, they would gasp in disbelief and just terror that I had this particular professor. His name was Gareth Jones. And every upperclassman would look at me with this fear in their eyes of like, oh my God, the chess set project. I go, what is that? And he said, just wait. So my very first class at design school was with this professor called Gareth Jones. And we're all sitting there in the art studio and out walks this Welsh fellow in all black with this huge head of hair, big puffy hair. And he comes out to the center of the studio and he looks at us and he breaks the silence and he says, I just want you all to know that half of you are going to fail my course. (laughs) And literally my heart starts racing and I'm looking around at my classmates and we're all looking at each other like, oh my God, is this what design school is all about? Like, Jesus Christ, like, this is crazy. (laughs) Like, he, he was so serious. And he goes, it's because half of you won't finish the chess set project. And he went on to explain what this thing was, which is a a semester-long project that took place outside of the studio. So this is in addition to your weekly assignments, where you had to choose a three-dimensional artist, like a sculptor, fashion designer, an architect, or furniture designer. And you had to find a book about their work, pick out different pieces of their, say, sculptures, and then recreate them in the format of a chess set. So you'd pick like one piece of their work and you'd make it twice for the rook, another piece for the bishops, another piece for the the knights, the king of the queen, and then eight pawns. So your pawns 
all had to look exactly the same. Now, they didn't have to look like chess pieces. They had to look like the actual pieces of art mm -hmm. from the artists. So at the time, I was really interested in, in furniture design. And I chose this guy named Garrett Rietfeld, who was a fantastic designer in the early 1920s, 1930s. Um, he did architecture and furniture. And so I'm thinking about this project. And you know, as you got to know Gareth, this guy was so incredibly opinionated. He would argue to the death. Like, he always had to be right. And so as I got to know him, like, I saw this tendency, and I would see him just, you know, crush students <laughs> in his grip of, of good logic and proper, you know, argumentation. <laughs> so I'm thinking, like, all right, well, I'm definitely not failing his class. I'm going to figure out how to finish whatever this chess set project is. I choose this, this furniture designer, and I think, you know, if I'm really going to commit myself to this, I don't want to come out the other end with, you know, 16 tiny little chairs that you can't use. I'd actually like to have full-size chairs that I could actually utilize afterwards. Sure. And so, why not, right? You know, like, I'm going to put all the effort into it. So I pitched in this idea, like, I want to make full-size functional chairs. And, and I thought for sure, like, this guy's going to be, like, fully encouraging. He's going to say, yeah, Joe, go for it. Instead, he looks at me and he goes, Joe, I really don't think you can do it. Really focus on the smallest scale. And he walks away. And it was in that moment where I'm like, F that. I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> uh -huh. Like these chairs are getting made, full size functional. And I set off on this conquest to figure out how the hell do you make 16 full size functional chairs? I've never made a chair in my life. I'd never even worked with wood before. Definitely didn't work with any of the machinery or hand tools that you need to make chairs. So this was like stepping into the unknown in a major way. Um, so I thought to myself, well, there's a whole furniture department on campus. Why not go talk to them? So I roll in and I talk to the head of the department. At that time, it was Roseanne Summerson. You're right. Yeah, I know. I was there. So I, sat <laughs> yes, no, I sat down with Roseanne and she's like, this, this kid's crazy, but he's <laughs> clearly very determined. Let me point him in the direction of some seniors in furniture who can maybe help him out. So sure enough, I meet with some upperclassmen, and they start to show me the ropes. They start to help me understand wood, construction, tools, machinery. They give me access to some of their wood shops on the weekend. And I set out on this journey to, to learn how to make chairs. And by the way, they have to look exactly like the photo, like the real thing. So that's the other challenge here is how do you make eight of the exact same chair so i'm cranking away all semester people are going out on weekends and like i'm in the studio working and i was just so committed to figuring out how to get this done all along the way whenever there was a check-in i would never share any updates with professor jones yes joe how's it going i just say yeah it's, it's getting there and so he he literally had no idea what was actually going on then at a certain point i have to get to making the eight pawns and Garrett Reedfield made this beautiful bench design with four pieces of wood that was absolutely stunning. The problem was, it was so expensive. I didn't have the money to buy the wood to make eight benches. So one day, I'm in the quad area outside the freshman dorms, and I'm looking around and I'm watching. And there's all these people kind of just smoking and standing around. There was nowhere to sit. So I thought to myself, I wonder if I can get the school to pay for the wood for the benches. I'll use oh, them for my project. Damn, and they can put that's the brilliant. <laughs> so I pitched the residence life director. He loves the idea. They 
you know, fork over $2,000 for this wood. It was like one inch thick plywood. It, this is durable stuff. I get to use the school's wood shops now to help put it together. And I'm co- basically collecting all these chairs in my dorm room <laughs> for the semester. My whole <laughs> dorm was overtaken with like chairs. Anyone who came to visit was like, what's going on here? This is like a factory. <laughs> and so the last day comes of the final critique at the end of the semester. And I purposely signed up right after the lunch break. So the whole class leaves to go to lunch. A couple of my friends help carry down all these chairs from the dorm room. I bring up the benches and I set everything up in the studio. And so lunch break ends and people start to file back in. My only regret from this entire experience is that I did not have a camera to take a picture of Gareth Jones' face when he entered the room. <laughs> had the most remarkable look on his face. He steps in, he does a triple take. He's looking at me, he's looking back at these chairs, he's looking at me, he's like counting them in his head. He's like, did it a 16? And he looks at me and the whole class is just silent at this point. And he goes, Joe, you've done it. You've proved me wrong. And I go, yes! <laughs> and it was this like breakthrough moment where from that point on, to me, anything was possible. You know, I stepped into this not having any idea or any experience whatsoever of how to make a chair. I had somebody that I looked up to, a mentor, telling me that I couldn't do it. There was no reason why this product should have been successful, right? All the odds were kind of against me. And at the end of this project, it was kind of like, wow, like if you can do that, like what's next? Like what's the next chess set project? And so RISD became just a sequence of these chess set projects of trying to find like the next challenge. So the basketball team is an example of that. And there's certainly another many more stories than we probably have time to go into. (laughs) (laughs) That is fantastic, though. I love that it's a combination of industriousness, like ingenuity, a little Mm -hmm. bit of hustler and a lot of rebellion, too. It's like pure spite to just prove him wrong. (laughs) There's nothing more motivating than like an <laughs> F you, you know? <laughs> you think I can't do it? Hell yes, I can. Watch this. Totally. That's awesome. Okay, so now that you've built all this furniture, you obviously have a lot of furniture experience. And you recently designed an office furniture collection for Bernhardt called Neighborhood. So it's kind of interesting how you veered away from furniture and now you're back with it. So can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, you know, so from the chess set project and those chairs, I went into industrial design and graphic design, mm-hmm. finished a dual degree. And, you know, the industrial design experience, you know, I fell in love with this idea of creating objects that people could interact with. And, you know, furniture is just one of many outputs. And a website, an app, piece of furniture, these are all just outputs of creating things for people to interact with. I was in Milan last year at Salone de Mobile. And I had a chance to meet the fellow who runs Bernhardt. And he asked me a question. He goes, Joe, if you could design anything for your office, what would it be? And the minute he asked me this, it's sort of like the floodgates opened. Because for the last nine years of running and working with Airbnb, we've moved offices five times. So it started in our apartment, became a small warehouse, became a bigger office space, became a much bigger office space. And now we've, we've even just expanded into another one here in San Francisco. And we've got 20 plus offices around the world. And so I've experienced what does it look like to outfit a physical environment? What does it look like to do it with you know, a design mind? 
to be design conscious about it. All along the way, I've experienced firsthand frustrations with existing furniture systems uh, on the market today. And there's a couple of reasons for this frustration. One is I just feel like the way that people work today, I'll just speak for myself, the way that our company works today, I think is very different from the way the companies used to work. Mm -hmm. And so furniture systems, I feel like mainly what's out there has these 20th century values in their roots, which is like somebody comes into their workstation, plugs into their desktop computer or their typewriter, sits next to a landline and stays at their desk for like eight hours a day. That just doesn't happen in our workspace. Mm -mm. Everybody here is on a laptop. Everyone has their mobile phones. Very rarely are people at their desk for hours at a time. So, you know, we've designed our space to have a variety of different workspaces from loud to quiet, from soft seating to standing desks and everything in between so that you can actually create this gradation of workspaces to match whatever mood people are in at that time of the day. So that's the first thing is creating furniture that has these 21st century values imbued in them. The second is that for our company, I think a lot of the companies too, the ability to change and adapt very quickly isn't a nice to have, it's a must have. And so what I've experienced over the early years of, of our business is that we're constantly changing. You know, we're constantly spinning teams up, spinning teams down. Uh, the business is growing very quickly around us. And so while the business is growing, the teams are changing, what I noticed is that the furniture wasn't. It's very heavy. It's very static. Usually bolted to the floor, hardwired in, these heavy bench systems that couldn't actually keep up with the pace at which the environment was changing around us. And I always felt very limited by that. And I don't think you should ever feel limited by the furniture systems that you're using. Like, rather, they should empower you. Mm -hmm. And so the third thing is this notion of the open floor plan, which has been all the rage and now it's getting all the criticism. It's good for collaboration and serendipity. It's terrible for focus and concentration. And so when he asked me this question, the floodgates just started pouring open. I was like, I have so many ideas of what kind of furniture we need that's not on the market right now. And he goes, well, send me some sketches. So I had my sketchbook and I pulled together some ideas. I sent him a couple of images of some sketches. He, he's like, oh, this looked really good. Let's meet in a couple months in New York and present a couple of different concepts. So I really got to polish off my rendering skills from industrial design. And I presented about six or seven concepts to him. And Jerry from Bernhardt is an incredible editor. He looked at a bunch of them and says, no, no, no. And he found one. He goes, yes, this is the one. And it was based on very simple geometry based on a cube and a back piece that can snap together to create a chair. And from that, it's almost like having Lego pieces. You could extrude them, you could connect them in an almost unlimited number of formats to suit the space for wherever the knees were. Mm -hmm. And as the space expanded, so too could the furniture. As the space contracted, so too could the system. Mm. And so he made a prototype, um, sent it out to California. Um, it looked great. We made a couple of tweaks, went through another iteration of prototypes. And before we knew it, we had this furniture system in front of us with upwards of 40 or so different pieces that you could put together in different configurations, no matter what the environment was. Jamie and I both saw it at ICFF this year, and it's inviting, and it also feels adaptable, and it feels like there's a lot of promise. Like, I wanted to play with it like it was Legos. I wanted to move it around <laughs> and make it my own. I wanted to make forts out of it, almost. <laughs> I'm so glad you had that experience. It was designed to address open floor plans in the sense that the materials are all soft. So they're meant to absorb sound. 
and it has a high back version to the soft seating. And this is important because there's this design principle that I learned at RISD from a professor called the Savannah Preference. And the Savannah Preference basically states that humans are hardwired to prefer Savannah-like landscapes, like way back in the day in Africa, which Savannah landscape is kind of open, but it's got moments of tree or shrub or brush where you can take protection from the sun or from predators. It's very different from a forest, which is highly dense and you can't see into it. And therefore, you don't know if it's safe or not. And it's also very different from a desert, which is totally open and you're fully exposed with nowhere to go. So humans have been preconditioned over many, many years to prefer savanna-like landscapes. So in open floor plan settings, the thing that I've experienced is, is there's a loss of privacy. There can be a loss of intimacy in open floor plans. And so the high back is really meant to create moments of intimacy and privacy, where you can spot these high back enclosed uh, structures. So the minute you enter a room, you can, the subconscious part of all of us that look and scan a landscape to see if it's safe or not, the high backs can help contribute to a landscape that helps you feel safe and helps you feel at ease. I was able to take the original prototypes back to the Samara Design Studio under the agreement that I couldn't tell anybody what they were or where they came from until they became public this year at ICFF. So for six months, people were using the furniture system and had no idea <laughs> that I was the guy behind it. Oh my um, God. Which was awesome. It was incredible because my team was using it at Samara and I got real honest feedback <laughs> about the work. <laughs> Nobody was blowing smoke about whether they liked it or not because they didn't even know. <laughs> I had people coming in, other executives on our executive team at Airbnb, who were like, oh my God, how can I get this for my, my side of the office? I have to kind of like delay them and say, oh, you know, these are just some prototypes from some furniture company. I don't know if it's in production yet, but yeah, the early <laughs> feedback was positive. We want to talk a little bit about Samara, which is um, the innovation and design studio within Airbnb. So I'd like to learn a little bit about how that came about and what the mission there is. Absolutely. So my co-founders, Brian and Knight, and I, we sat down a couple of years ago and we decided that it was the right moment to create a unit inside the company that could really think beyond the future of, of what the company might become, of what opportunities might exist. Kind of like, you know, sending a, a scout out into the field or over the mountain ridge to see what's on the other side. We believe this is important because everything that we do with Airbnb, we, we do it for the long term. We're aiming to build a long-term independent company here. And so that means that it changes the way that you might make some decisions around your culture, around who you hire, around how you spend your money, around, you know, kind of how you operate, and certainly like how you innovate. Because in the world of tech, if you're not innovating, you're kind of stuck in one era of technology, but the industry can move so quickly that um, it, can, it can move beyond your core business of today. And, you know, there's this famous list of like 10 companies from the 1990s that were the hottest companies of that time. Nine of them you've never heard of anymore <laughs> because uh, they maybe didn't keep up with the pace at which the world is moving around them. And so we decided that well, it's, it's time to create a, a group that can help start to figure out what's down the road. And so over the years, each of us as co-founders have, I think, naturally graduated into the roles that we're best suited for. Brian's an incredible CEO. Nate's running strategy for the company. He's doing an amazing job. And I feel like I've been able to get back into the, the invention and the early stage ideation of ideas. So that's what led to what we call Samara. Samara is an in-house design studio at Airbnb that's 
really building on these, these new attitudes of, of sharing and trust that exist in the world um, that 10 years ago, you know, it didn't. It's crazy that 10 years ago, no one would have ever have predicted that people would be sharing their homes at the rate that they are today. And just as an example, our peak this summer, recently we had over 2 million people staying in each other's homes in close to 191 countries worldwide. Wow. It's just something that no one ever predicted. And everybody said it was crazy and it would actually happen. So Samara is building on these new attitudes. And we've got a team that's working in forms of software and forms of hardware. And I think, you know, ultimately they want to prove that the hospitality, the generosity, and the, the, the simple act of trusting strangers can actually go much further than even where we are today. So you can think of Samara as a space for those values to continue to evolve way beyond travel, way beyond hospitality, and maybe one day into our daily lives. That is very exciting territory. And you can call it a design and innovation studio, but you're charting a course too. You have a platform and enough gas in the engine to potentially carve some new social channels for the way people connect. I would love to be a part of <laughs> that. <laughs> I would really love. And, and some of the things we are working on do imbue that the spirit of that, which is the nature of the internet economy and the nature of the device culture that we live in. It's been reflected on in so many different ways by so many different writers who are more eloquent than I am about how it's disconnecting us from each other in, in so many different ways that I'd love to figure out how to build on top of what we've already done, which is to use the internet to get people offline and back into the real world. I'd love to figure out what, where we can graduate to next. If we've already reached some new level of trust between people that didn't exist before, with this new engendered trust, where can we trampling to next? And that's what Samara is answering. Hot damn, I love that you said trampoline, because this is not one foot in front of the other. This is a springboard, <laughs> and that <laughs> has got momentum and velocity and trajectory. That is very, very exciting. That's a good image you just painted for us. Thank you very much. <laughs> there is one thing that's already come out of Samara, which I never expected, is that Samara is birthing whole teams in and of themselves. So yeah, they're working on products and services that relate to the future of the company, yet we've also identified uh, areas of opportunity that have birthed these whole teams in and of themselves. And one of those teams is called Human. And Human is a group of software engineers, of designers, of operations experts that are taking the strengths of the company, things that we're naturally inclined to be good at, such as short-term hospitality, trust between strangers, nurturing communities at global scale and saying, what are the issues or opportunity areas out in the world that can benefit from these strengths of ours? And so this team formed to answer that question. And a lot of it is inspired actually by Hurricane Sandy back in 2012, when as you might remember thousands of people lost power, access to food in their homes. Um, was, that was a pretty scary moment. And I remember <laughs> I remember getting an email from one of our hosts in Brooklyn saying, Dear Airbnb, I want to host my five guest rooms for free. How can I do that on your site? And at the time, you had to have a payment to facilitate a connection between a guest and a host. Well, we sort of said, why? And her email sparked this 24-hour engineering marathon 
where we completely reconfigured our payment system to allow anybody in New York to offer their extra bedroom to somebody who's been displaced at no charge. And so what started with one woman's idea quickly became this movement of generosity, of hospitality throughout all of the New York area. In fact, the, the mayor of New York, Mayor Bloomberg at the time, even partnered with us as one of the relief causes to the housing problem that was taking place in New York after Hurricane Sandy. And so we quickly realized that Hurricane Sandy was not the only natural disaster that's ever going to strike, obviously. Right. And we started to lay the foundations for a platform that would allow any host anywhere in the world to open up their home for free if someone nearby was displaced. And over the last five years, we've seen this natural generosity in the Airbnb community displayed over 60 times in over 20 different countries. So typhoons in Southeast Asia to earthquakes in Japan to wildfires in Canada, the floods in England, like you name it, if there's natural disaster and we have a community nearby, there's a good chance that we have hosts who are offering their homes for free. So recently, I asked this question to the team. I said, what if we were to leverage this natural generosity on a daily basis? What if we, instead of being reactive to these things in the world, we were proactive? And one of our engineers came back to the table and said, well, Joe, here's some numbers around the number of displaced people in the world today. The number of refugees is the largest it's been since World War II. It's 65 million plus globally. Um, Former President Obama called it the crisis of our era. And we all sat down and said, yeah, like we can help house people short term uh, with people who've never met each other from that come from faraway places. And we can do this in a way that nurtures community, both globally and locally. And so that set off this uh, incredible initiative inside the company and in the human team to build out a proper platform that really answers this question. What if we use the same technology and the same ease of use that we give to travelers to those who are displaced? Wow. And that's exactly what they did. So we recently launched what we call the Open Homes Platform which allows anybody, uh, Airbnb host or not, to, to raise their hand and say, you know, I, I see this as a huge problem in the world right now. Maybe I have a check to write, maybe I don't, but I've at least got a spare bedroom down the hallway and, and I want to raise my hand and step up to help. There's now an incredibly easy way for anybody with an extra bedroom down the hall to help with this, this global problem. And so the platform works very simply. Hosts can sign up on one side. And on the other end, we work very closely with agencies like the IRC and others around the world who do the vetting of refugee families to ensure that they go through the whole checklist process. And then the agency actually does the booking directly with the host. So it's launched now globally throughout Canada, France, UK, Greece, the United States. And it's early Though the stories that are coming in are incredibly profound. There's a, a woman in Denver named Susan who took in an Iraqi family uh, in her, her home in Denver. And she very quickly learned that housing is an important need, but there's a, a whole other... Imagine you're coming to a country for the first time after waiting sometimes for many years, and you've just landed. The welcoming <laughs> of having somebody bring into their home, of having the conveniences of a home versus, say, a cheap motel, which is where sometimes a lot of people end up. Uh, it was just such a great first impression for this Iraqi family. And, you know, over the course of their stay with her, 
she was raving to her neighbors about how exciting it was to play a part in this you know, global situation that's taking place. And her neighbors started to get interested. <laughs> and so the cool thing is that they started to get involved. One guy donated laptops so that the kids could have computers. Another helped their kids get into a local school. Another drove the husband to and from work interviews so he could get a job. And so like everybody started to enroll in and say, like, yeah, I, I want to help. Like, how do we help these new community members integrate into this part of our neighborhood? I love it. You had mentioned leveraging generosity of the community, but I also think of it as the community being able to leverage the platform in order to empower their generosity. Because before they didn't have a way to connect to refugees, and now they can participate in the crisis in a meaningful way because you facilitated a protocol for that. It's only the beginning for, for this kind of platform. And, and really a thesis that I have, which I'm, I'm dedicated to, to prove one way or the other, which is what happens when you can marry the strengths of what we have as a company, which uh, I would say is like scalable software and great design with these agencies and nonprofits that they know the problem better than we ever will, yet maybe don't have access to the same types of scalable software talent or designers that, that we do. And so what does it look like when you can merge those two things together? Like what kind of multiple can you achieve? How many more people can you reach if you take the scalable approach that we've figured out through Airbnb, and you marry it with the people who understand the issue the best, like these nonprofits that resettle refugee families. That's what's most, most exciting to me. I can feel that from you. That is very exciting. It is. I love how you're changing the world through design, which is exactly what you said you wanted to do in your mission <laughs> in the beginning of this episode. <laughs> I feel really lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the world is lucky to have you and everything that you've contributed to. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about this project? People can go to airbnb.com slash welcome. And for those that want to keep tabs on Samara, the design studio Airbnb, you can go to samara.com to add your email address for future updates. And what about you on social media? Do you have an Instagram or a Twitter? I am, though I I just set it up so that it's buried deep in a folder on my iPhone and it's labeled (laughs) AM, PM only. (laughs) And so I've I've effectively cut social media out of my daytime and I just check it out in the morning and the evening. So I'm posting stuff on Twitter at jgebbia and on Instagram at joegebbs. Great. Well, thank you so much. We loved all of your stories from the college days and what you're doing with Airbnb and with people around the world opening their homes up to help others is an incredible and much needed effort. So thank you. Awesome. You guys rock. You're great. All right. Take care. So, you know, the idea of using your superpowers for good or evil Mm-hmm. Well, Joe's <laughs> <laughs> using his for good, obviously. <laughs> there yeah. were so many more questions I wanted to ask him. Yeah, but he's out saving the world, so he doesn't have time. <laughs> no, I know. He's very busy. <laughs> he's very busy. But I think he's an, an amazing example for the cause that we believe in so firmly, which is that design can save the world and 
and change people's lives. And people should not think of it as just pretty objects. It really is a framework for looking at how things operate and spots where they're broken and look for solutions and new pathways for interaction, for connection, for all kinds of things that can, you know, build a brighter future. God damn it. Mm-hmm. So when he was talking about RISD and the teacher he had in the chess set, I was just thinking about or wondering like how many of our listeners have attended RISD and had to go through the chess set project. <laughs> and I kind of want to know if you have sweated through that that process. We would love to hear from you and your experience with oh, the chess set. Totally. <laughs> You know, I was also thinking if we overlapped by a year at RISD, then he was in there trying to make those chairs, those benches while I was there. And I'm trying to remember, like, I don't Yeah. Mm. I mean, maybe I was just so wrapped up in my thesis project. I mean, I was there 24 seven. So I'm sure we were probably in the woodshop at the same time. I just was like, who's this kid? He's not a furniture student. It is such a small world. Like when you start talking to people, you kind of see where your stories overlap. Yeah. I do like the fact that he had his radar on the whole time he was in school. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's well, important. Well, I think it's important too as, you know, if you're in a design school or in a, really in any school studying anything to Any situation. And, yeah, yeah. Like get involved, explore other departments, other social activities and put your, your feelers out there and, and see who might be doing something that you could contribute to or be a part of and team up. I love that he started the balls, the basketball team at RISD. (laughs) (laughs) It takes a lot of, I don't know, if you're an undergrad and you're still learning your way in the world, it takes a lot of, I want to say courage and gumption and balls (laughs) to call up (laughs) other schools and say, come play our newly formed team or a bunch of artists. Yeah, but here's the thing. I mean, think about it. If you're super passionate about something and you really want to make it happen, it doesn't really matter because you will go to great lengths to make it happen. And I think, you know, that's what happens with a lot of startups is the people who start them are super passionate about what they want to accomplish. And it's not really necessarily about I want to start this business it's about I want to see this thing happen or I want Mm -hmm. to participate in this thing and have fun and you know it's a passion project but it turns into a business and that was his first taste of bringing people together yeah go balls (laughs) you guys out there you should go balls out (laughs) there's so many jokes Amy I just I know that's what that's why they're calling for the balls joke I know. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. Please do us a favor and write us a review. It really is enormously helpful. And please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read an additional Q&A we did with Joe, and see images of his work, like the furniture collection he talked about. You can connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcasts. We appreciate all of your comments. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris with music by L1011. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.